Amen. That's some good news for us as God's people this morning. Let's pray as we get started. Great God of heaven, we come before you only because of your son. Lord, we pray this morning that as we look to him, that you would challenge us, that you would comfort us, that you would remind us of the the depth of your grace towards unlikely and undeserving people like us. As you do that, would you strengthen us in our hearts? Would you give us a great vision for how you're working in us, how you're working through us in this church, as well as how we together serve this community in Jesus' name as representatives of your great and glorious kingdom? So we entrust this time to you, asking your spirit to work mightily among us, that your word would be brought into the inner parts of our being to strengthen us and to grow us, to change us and to comfort us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Allow me to welcome you again here to River City Church and our time as we dive into God's word as the family of God. If you are a guest here today, my name is Charlie Hogstead. I'm one of the elders, and I have been charged with continuing our series in Hebrews chapter 11. And this has been a time for us as a church to explore the nature of faith, to define it further for us as we live here together in this community, as we do life together as the body of Christ This is our time to define that from a bunch of different angles, looking at different people from the Old Testament and how they exercised faith in God. And so welcome into that. Uh, In terms of birth order, I am the firstborn son to Daniel and Pamela, uh, if I'm going to be formal about it, but there's Dan and Pam. Uh, They live a couple hours east of here, and I have a younger sister whose name is Annie, and she moved to Los Angeles uh, right out of high school uh, as an 18-year-old. She... uh, went to acting school in Hollywood right off the Sunset Strip. Um, She produced and starred in a movie with her now fiancé, Josh, uh, who's a great guy. And she now works in finance at Legendary Pictures. And so she's uh, still living in Los Angeles. She loves it. I'm proud of her. Uh, She is more courageous than I am in many ways. I could not have lived in Los Angeles uh, by myself as an 18-year-old. She questions why I live in Fargo at all uh, as a 36-year-old. Um, uh, I've grown to like it, and I think one day we might convince her of uh, its worthiness as well. But I'm also, as I reflected on my relationship with my sister this week, I'm also very sorrowful for how I treated her growing up, because I was just, I was basically just a jerk to my little sister. Um, And I can look back on that now and say, oh, that was actually like verbal and emotional abuse that I perpetrated upon my little sister. And you can actually still see a lot of the remnants of that damage in our relationship even to this day. Uh, But I have a hope that as we have the chances going into the future to actually work through some of that hurt, that we can actually move toward having a healthy, loving relationship as brother and sister. So my my family dynamics, uh, they're a little bit messed up, as I'm sure yours are, because we live in a messed up place with messed up people, and that's just a normal experience for us. But family dynamics is at the heart of verses 20 and 21 of Hebrews 11, which we're studying this morning. And it's these family dynamics that we will look at that will help inform how we see God's relationship to us as his beloved children. So if you want to track with our study this morning, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get you a copy of God's word. We will be on page 652 in these Bibles, page 652. So you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. And as we study Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, what we're going to see is that we are prone to doubt that God has a plan 
when life doesn't go according to plan. And so in that, we might try to nudge him in a direction or we might find it difficult as we live by faith in the world that's resistant to God's plan. It's resistant to the gospel. But we'll also see that God absolutely has a plan and nothing can stop it from moving forward. And so by faith, what we were studying this summer, by faith, we align ourselves with God's plan while we pass on his blessings to those around us. So in short, in light of our definition of faith being confidence, God will do all that he's promised to do. Today we're going to talk about faith being confidence that nothing can stop God's plan from moving forward. And so let's read our two verses for this morning. Let's see what God has prepared for us as his kids. Again, Hebrews 11, verses 20 and 21. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Amen. Two short verses, but a lot behind them, which we're going to study in a moment. Our first point this morning, we're going to look at verse 20, and we're going to celebrate the fact that God's plan is better. We trust that God's plan is better. So verse 20, this focuses on the faith of Isaac, whom we learned a little bit about last week from Pastor Jake. What the author is trying to do is reinterpret for his audience the nature of Isaac's faith as confidence that God would do all that he's promised to do. And we're going to see how that actually plays itself out. So to understand that, what makes Isaac's example of faith something that's worth our time and study today, we need to understand something that was a very normal aspect of Hebrew culture, but is not quite as normal for us. And it's the idea of birthright and blessing. Birthright and blessing. Words that are very similar in English, they're also very similar in Hebrew as well. And this was a very important idea in this culture. So if you've ever received an inheritance or if you've ever written a will, then you're going to have an idea of what this idea of birthright and blessing entails. So in Hebrew culture, the firstborn son would receive what was called the birthright. The firstborn son, he would be the one who would carry forward the family name. He would continue to steward the assets of the family. And even in the absence of his father, he would act as the family priest. So in short, this firstborn son, he was set aside as holy to the Lord, and he was the one through whom this family legacy would continue. And so in Jewish society, this was a position of honor, and the rights of the firstborn, it entailed receiving a blessing from his father. And so the blessing portion would be actually a double portion of the family estate, or the inheritance. And so I'm the firstborn in my family, I have one sister, So in Hebrew culture, what would happen is my parents would split their estate into three parts, and I would get two, much to the chagrin of my sister, who's already writing on the bottom of my parents' stuff the things she wants. But that's how it would work. So this was a a position of honor. They received a double portion of the family estate, but it was also a great responsibility in maintaining the family line and continuing the family prosperity into the future. And so if there were no sons, the inheritance would be split up equally amongst daughters. But in, for us, instead of having a lawyer write up all the, all the details of where we want all of our stuff to go when we pass away, this practice of birthright and blessing, it was baked right into the Hebrew culture. This was just normal and it was practiced amongst all the families. And so this is why some of the people we studied, when they could not conceive and have a child, it was a great dishonor and it led to uh, a lot of uh, a 
pain for these families because they wouldn't have anybody to carry on their name and to carry on their assets. It was as though God had not blessed them and that their name would disappear from the earth. And so for them, this was actually a really, really big deal. And in verse 20, we see that Isaac, it says, acted by faith when he invoked future blessings upon his sons, Jacob and Esau. And so the question we need to ask, what makes this an act of faith that we can examine and study if it was such a normal part of Hebrew culture? So this the sticky family dynamics at play in this particular story is going to show us more of why this truly was an act of faith. And so Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, they were having trouble becoming pregnant. Even though God had promised that through them, his ongoing work of redemption would continue. They were unable to have children, and so they prayed. The Lord granted their request, and he gave them two right off the bat. She was pregnant with twins, and it sounds like it was a tough pregnancy, like the kids were struggling within her, so she prayed again, and she asked, like, Lord, why are these children struggling within me? And the Lord responded with this. He says, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So like my sister and I, these twins were fighting, and they were fighting even before they were born. But as they were born, the first one who came out was Esau, who was immediately followed by his brother Jacob, who was holding on to his heel as he was born. Uh, Esau, he was a hunter. And Isaac, his father, loved him very much because Esau had the meats, and apparently Isaac liked to eat. And so Esau was his favorite, but Jacob, he was quiet. It says he lived in tents, and Rebekah, his mother, loved him. And so it's a little insight into the family dynamics going on uh, within this particular household. So Esau, he had the rights of the firstborn. He was loved by his father, and he was set up to receive the double portion of his father's inheritance. But we read that Esau despised his birthright. He didn't appreciate it. And so what he ended up doing was selling his birthright to his younger brother, Jacob, for a meal. So, so Esau was working in the fields. He was exhausted. It was hard work. Jacob was at home chilling. He was making some food. And so Esau got back. He was hungry. And so Jacob took advantage of his brother's vulnerability and said, I tell you what, I will give you some of the food that I made if you sell me your birthright. And Esau is like, I'm about to die. Birthright's not of any value to me anymore. So sure, give me some food and you can have my birthright. And so the deal goes down. He traded the position of the firstborn and the rights that go with it to Jacob for a meal. And that fulfilled what God had told Rebekah would take place, that the older would serve the younger. And so this event, a very normal everyday thing, at least in terms of making food and hunting and working the fields, takes place. They go with their lives. And as Isaac is approaching death, He invites Esau, his beloved firstborn, into his room to be blessed and to receive this double portion of the inheritance. And so Isaac said, why don't you go? Why don't you go hunt again? Why don't you make me some of the food I like and you come back and then I'll bless you? So Esau went as he was directed. But Rebekah, she loved the other brother. She loved the younger brother. She loved Jacob. She heard all this and she says, Jacob, dress up like your brother, make some food, bring it into your dad, pretend to be Esau, and then receive the blessing. And so... Jacob did that. They conspired together to receive the blessing of the firstborn. And Isaac, because he was old, he had poor eyesight, he just believed that it was his son Esau, that he smelled like him, that he he actually felt like his son Esau. 
So Jacob set himself up to receive the blessing, the double portion of the family inheritance, as well as the responsibility of carrying forward that family name. And so thinking that he was talking to Esau, uh, Isaac actually blesses Jacob, saying, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And so this goes down. This happens. Esau comes back, found out what happened, and he was just devastated. He hated Jacob, his younger brother, for what he had done. And though Isaac still blessed Esau, it wasn't the same blessing as the one given to Jacob is now the firstborn of the family. And so here's where we get into Isaac's faith that the author of Hebrews is pointing toward. So rather than just reversing course and giving Esau the blessing of the firstborn, Isaac held to his word and he trusted that God's plan wasn't necessarily his plan. So Isaac realized that God's plan was for the younger to rule over the older, for the the older to serve the younger, for Jacob to carry forward the family name rather than Esau. Isaac loved his firstborn, but he realized that by blessing Jacob, God had another plan in mind. And so for for God, like think think about these guys in uh, uh, birthright and blessing. For God, this idea of birthright and blessing had much more significance than just passing on and protecting family assets. For God, this was how he was carrying forward his plan of redemption, where his name, the name of the God of Israel, would go forward into a dark and lost world. So something much bigger was at play in these moments. And what we can see is God uses unlikely, and he uses undeserving people to fulfill his promises and to carry forward his plan. Jacob, he is that unlikely and undeserving person because he wasn't the firstborn, but he received it by taking advantage of his brother's vulnerable uh, vulnerable position. And then he received the blessing of his father by deceiving Isaac and pretending to be Esau. But Isaac, in these moments, he trusted God that his redemptive work would be carried forward even through somebody as unlikely and undeserving as Jacob. So faith being confidence that nothing can stop God's plan from moving forward is reflected here. We can't even stop God's plan from going forward. Our preferences, our ideas of how it should work uh, cannot, be, cannot trump God's plan for his redemptive work to carry for, be carried forward. Isaac, in these moments, he acted by faith and he got out of the way and he let God's plan move forward even though it wasn't his plan. So in Genesis 28, after all of this, Isaac blesses Jacob explicitly, knowing it was him, and he says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And so when life doesn't go according to plan, we can doubt that God even has a plan. And so as you look back on your life, 
Have you ever had the thought, like, is God, does he know what he's doing? Because if I could choose how he would work in my life, it would have been different. Have you ever tried to even, like, nudge him in a direction, maybe a bit more in line with how you think he should fulfill his promises to you? On the, on the flip side of those heart questions, what would be different about your life if you had a deep and abiding confidence that nothing could stop God's plans from moving forward? Not even you. There are things that I've done in my life that have been very difficult, very sinful. There are things that I've gone through in my life which have been a lot of suffering. But ultimately, those elements of suffering and difficulty that I've faced have actually deepened my faith as we look back on them, remembering that God's plan is oftentimes different than my plan. Even though in those moments, I'm questioning, what are you, what are you, what's going on here? This is, not what I, this is not what I signed up for. And even in my relationship with my sister, if I could go back to the late 80s, early 90s, when we were kids, I would change a whole lot about how I related to my little sister. But even in that now, looking back on those times, I hope that the, despite the way that I treated her with emotional and verbal abuse, that God would show her that he uses unlikely and undeserving people who are messed up and who are sinful to carry forward his plan of redemption. Or even with my own kids. There have been times and there will be times where I need to get out of the way and I need to entrust my children to the Lord who saves people by grace through faith. I can't nudge him in any direction there other than to believe that he is good and merciful and gracious. And so what does it look like for you to get out of the way, to set aside your preferences, to trust that God's plan is better than yours. Because Isaac exercised that kind of faith. And eventually Jacob, his son, would as well. And so point two this morning, we trust God's plan amidst resistance. We trust God's plan amidst resistance. And so as we go forward in the book of Genesis, we see that, that God was quite gracious to Jacob. In fact, Jacob's name changed to Israel because he was the father of Israel's <clears throat> 12 tribes. And so just as God promised, he was making these small families, he was building them into a great nation, a great multitude, a great company of people. And Jacob's 11th son was Joseph, whom we're going to study next Sunday morning. And Joseph had quite a, a tumultuous life, to say the least. And we'll hear more about that next week. But when he was 17, when Joseph was 17 years old, he had two dreams. And one of those dreams, God told him he would rule over his brothers. And the other dream, God told him he would rule over even his father. And so, as you can imagine, sibling rivalry, his brothers resented him for this dream. And his father, uh, Jacob, even rebuked him for having that thought. But Jacob, it says in Genesis 37, that he kept this thought in mind. He didn't let that go these things that Jacob had dreamed and heard from God. And so let's fast forward through all these crazy details of Joseph's life, and we find him as second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt, which was the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And so Joseph, he's a big deal. He marries the daughter of an Egyptian priest, and then he has two boys. Manasseh is the firstborn, and Ephraim. And so Jacob he loved his son Joseph, and in line with those dreams that, that Joseph had, Jacob ended up planning on giving 
Joseph the blessings of the firstborn, even though he didn't deserve it. God's plan was to use unlikely and undeserving people to carry forward his name and his plan. But in our passage for this morning, it says, by faith, Jacob and dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph. So this is kind of confusing, so forgive me and roll with me for a minute. But as the firstborn, Joseph, Jacob made his son Joseph the firstborn. So therefore, Joseph was deserving of a double portion of his father's inheritance. And so what Jacob does is he adopts Manasseh and Ephraim into his family and gives them each a portion of the inheritance, thereby giving Joseph his double portion and then giving, blessing these two boys as well. And then not only that, he also reverses the birth order of Manasseh and Ephraim, giving Ephraim the uh, rights of the firstborn. And so that's a, that's a lot. Again, sticky family dynamics. But God works through these kind of dynamics. And so what happens is Jacob's dying. Joseph brings his two boys before his father to be blessed. And so he sets Manasseh, the older, in front of Jacob's right hand, or my right hand here. And he sets Ephraim, the younger, before uh, Jacob's left hand. And so what would the right hand was symbolizing the blessing. And so uh, Jacob was going to bless Manasseh as the firstborn. But what Jacob does is kind of weird. What Jacob does in that moment is he actually crosses his hands, blessing Ephraim as the firstborn rather than Manasseh. And so as he's doing that, he's holding his arms out like this. He's blessing his grandsons who have now been adopted into his family as full sons. And he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. I don't know why I like that little phrase, bless the boys. Maybe it's because I got two boys. Bless the boys. And in them... Let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So Joseph, he's sitting there watching this. He is, he just received the birthright as of the firstborn. He is second command in Egypt. He's a powerful dude, and he thinks his dad screwed up. And so what he does is he grabs his dad's hand and tries to cross him back to actually get it in the right order. But Jacob says, I know, I know. It's actually like this. Joseph thought his father had screwed up. He tries to move his hands back, but Jacob refused and so put Ephraim before Manasseh in the birth order. So in this, the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jacob was exercising faith. He was remembering that Joseph, his son, was the one whom God had chosen to rule over his brothers, now as the firstborn, but also who was the prime minister of Egypt. He was a big deal. He was in authority over his family. And now he had the birthright given to him and he was in charge. But Jacob exercised faith amidst his son's resistance to what God had desired in these boys. So we don't see explicitly why he blessed them, but we know that Jacob gave these boys a choice of really, really good land on a mountain slope that Jacob himself had, had, uh, had actually fought for and received. So he gave these boys a choice piece of land where they'd be fruitful, where they would be productive, and we see as Israel grows and God's promises continue to be fulfilled, Ephraim becomes a leading tribe amongst the other tribes of Israel. And so that's a lot of background for one short verse in the book of Hebrews. But I hope that gives us a sense of why this was such a big deal for Jacob to exercise faith in this way, because it shows that confidence 
Uh, Faith is confidence that nothing can stop God's plan from going forward, not even the resistance of others. And so we trust that even as, as we see resistance to the gospel around us, we trust that our God is still at work drawing people to himself, that he's going to save his people. Nothing is going to stop his plan of redemption from taking place. And so what kind of resistance are we facing? How do we respond when there are people who are resistant to the gospel, who are resistant to the plan of God being carried out? What would you do if faced with that in your own personal life, whether it be family, friends, coworkers, uh, roommates, whatever it may be? On the flip side of that, what would confidence that nothing can stop God's plan from going forward, even amidst resistance, what would that change in you? We looked at Isaac. He needed to get out of the way. Now we're looking at Jacob, and he took a courageous course of action as he lived out God's plan of redemption. And so these are the dynamics at play in our family as we live together as the body of Christ. Where do we need to trust God's plan rather than our plan? Where do we need to be courageous in terms of actually seeing God carry out his plan in us and through us, amongst one another, in our community? Those are hard questions to ask. I'm hoping for a great discussion this week in community groups. I'm hoping that as we sit here in a moment and take communion, we can reflect on these things. But as we reflect on those things, we need to talk about another son that we haven't talked about yet. We need to talk about our Lord Jesus who will empower this kind of attitude, this kind of approach, this kind of lifestyle within us because he lived it first. And so we're going to look to Jesus because what he did was he submitted himself to his father's plan of redemption even in the face of opposition, even in the face of resistance. And we can see from Acts 2 that Jesus Christ has always been God's plan A of redemption. There's never been a plan B. Jesus has always been the primary means by which the unlikely and the undeserving, the unworthy, become adopted into the family of God. So Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, he's sharing the gospel with a huge crowd, and he says this, men of Israel, so he's addressing those who are descendant from Jacob, hear these words. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, which, by the way, was a backwater town. Nothing good comes from there. An unlikely place for an unlikely Savior. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, raised Jesus up from the dead, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so before dying, Jesus, knowing that he was God's plan A for redemption to carry forward into the world, he submitted himself to God's plan, knowing that it meant his death. It meant his separation from his father. But he said in prayer, Not my will be done, but your will be done. When Jesus told his disciples in Mark chapter 8 that God's plan was for him to die for the unlikely and the undeserving and the unworthy, Peter, the same guy who just preached in Acts 2, Peter actually rebukes Jesus. He says, you can't die. That's not how this is going to happen, is it? And Jesus rebukes him right back. 
and says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, and my goodness, so do I. How often am I setting my, my mind on the things of man rather than the things of God? And so we look to our Lord Jesus who submitted himself to God's plan, even in the face of resistance, and he followed through, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And so we can refine our definition even a bit further. Faith is confidence that nothing can stop God's plan from moving forward, not even ourselves, not even others, not even death, and not even the death of the only son. In fact, the death of the son is the only means by which we're saved at all. He is the one who has made it possible for us to receive blessing and birthright and an inheritance because he himself, he is the firstborn. Hebrews chapter 1 calls him that. Calls him the firstborn. Colossians 1.15, he is the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.18, Revelation 5, they call him the same thing, the firstborn of the dead. So death, it couldn't hold Jesus. He was resurrected And now, according to these passages, he is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So by faith in Christ, we now receive all the rights and all the blessings of the firstborn, which is crazy to me, because I know I definitely don't deserve that. I know how unlikely it is for me to receive something so amazing as that. We weren't even in the family of God. We were foreigners, we were outcasts, we were dead in sin, but now as those born again, we are reborn as the firstborn. We have all the rights and blessings of Jesus. Hebrews 12, after our passage, says it like this, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. I bet that looks pretty cool. And to the assembly, here it is, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So just like Jacob, we are unlikely, we are undeserving, we are unworthy, but yet we've received much. Like Ephraim and Manasseh, we've received a blessing and inheritance that we did not deserve and there is no way we could ever earn it. uh, Ephraim and Manasseh were uh, adopted into Jacob's family, even though their mother was the daughter of an Egyptian priest. They received this adoption and they received this blessing that they did not deserve. And like them, we received this adoption and this blessing that we cannot deserve. They were given a choice piece of land on a mountain slope where they could be fruitful and productive. And Hebrews 12, we just read it, we have been brought to Mount Zion the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem with innumerable angels in festal gathering. So now we, as the children of God, we carry forward this family name. We pass on the blessings that we have received to others who, by faith, just like us, by faith they are born again and they join us in the assembly of the firstborn. So we tell our children about God's grace. We point our kids to the firstborn from the dead, Jesus. And we pray that they would believe and they would join us as fellow children of God being adopted into his family. We might need to get out of the way at times. We might need to be courageous at times. But faith 
is confidence that nothing can stop God's plan from moving forward, not even death. Isaac and Jacob, they were old when they blessed these boys, when they blessed their sons. They were staring death right in the face. But Jacob, he looked back on a life of God's faithfulness to this unlikely and this undeserving, this unworthy person. And he trusted, looking forward, that God would continue to be faithful to future generations, that his promises would be fulfilled even beyond his life. And so we, we live lives of faith, bearing fruit now, entrusting ourselves and others to God's plan, even when things don't go according to our plan. We pass on the good news of God's grace amidst resistance. We tell our kids and just the kids of our church, like it's happening right there and it's happening in our two rooms out there right now. They're hearing of Jesus as the firstborn from the dead, just now. We tell our kids about the good news of Jesus as the only means by salvation. And we do life together. We face death with a confidence that we will be among the assembly of the firstborn and we will worship and we'll praise God together with all of his people for all eternity because that's our blessed inheritance as children, to be in the very presence of God for all time, enjoying him. And so in that, as a body, may God give us the strength that we need and the wisdom that we require to get out of the way, to be courageous, to pass on the blessings of God to our family, our friends, our children, just to anybody who's going to listen. Because God uses the unlikely and the undeserving and the unworthy to carry forward his plan of redemption. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Again, Father, we come before you as the one who has adopted us, the one who has given us so many things, primarily Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we pray in his name, the one who has the right to stand before you, the one who sits at your right hand right now, who intercedes for us right now, we pray in his name, asking that you would give us great courage and strength as a body, that you would give us a great confidence that nothing can stop your plan from going forward. So in that, Father God, use us mightily for your purposes, whether it be in encouraging one another in sharing the gospel with somebody who's hurting and broken, in pointing our kids to the Savior. Lord God, would you be merciful and gracious and draw them to yourself? Use us in that amazing role of sharing your good news and your gospel. But Lord, in that we need strength, we need courage, we need help. So Holy Spirit, would you take these wonderful truths about faith and confidence that you will fulfill all of your plans? Would you instill them deep in us and help us to hold on to them tightly as you hold us tightly? Father, we give you great praise and great thanks for your, your wonderful mercy and grace to us in Christ. Would you remind us even more of those things as we continue our time in Jesus' name? Amen.